Hey everybody, Sean here. Uh, I would just like to tell you that, boom, mental health is difficult. <laughs> and that's why I started this whole thing. I've, I've dedicated at least a year to this thing uh, to try and bring more resources to you. You know, I feel like a lot of these, there's a lot of mental health experts out there and they have answers and tips and tricks and all sorts of things to help people who might be struggling. And I feel like I have a place and I'm in a cool position to try and talk to these people and share their information with you. Because mental health is confusing. There's a lot to it. It's not as black and white as we hope, which I'm figuring out through these. And I think of having a better understanding and representation of what's really going on by people who have studied and have been in the, the field, the trenches, working with people, things are going to be better. So if you would like to support, uh, head over to onewholelifemedia.com. We also have a Patreon. Links are also in the description and support what we're doing here. So in this podcast, it jumped all over the place because this is the first podcast I did with anybody. And I had so many questions and I couldn't have asked for a better person to talk to. Dr. Takash answered every single one I had and then some. And these, are, these have been questions that have been plaguing me for years. And I just wish I found him sooner because he gave me tips after the podcast that I'm still using today to go, oh, that's how this works. For example, we talked about trauma can be passed on through your DNA. We talked about psychedelics and how they're improving and helping with the mental health system. We talked about how and why medication works for some and why it doesn't work for others. And we, we pretty much covered the whole spectrum of the, the goods and bads of mental health and where they're at and where to move from here. So as a base layer of where to start, this couldn't have been any better. So let's get rocking and rolling. Michael Katosh is a chief operating officer and chief behavioral health officer for Affinity Corporate Group. Affinity is a leading occupational health population and disease management life science organization that specializes in providing technology-based solutions and supports for all employee and population wellness endeavors. Additionally, Dr. Takash is an adjacent professor at St. Mary's University in the Twin Cities. He is a former director of recovery management for Hazleton Betty Ford Foundation, where he also worked for as a psychologist and for a while as a core facility member at Hazleton Betty Ford Graduate School of Addiction Studies. Dr. Dakash has provided clinical services in a variety of settings, including outpatient addiction treatment, community mental health, residential crisis settings, hospital settings, and college counseling centers. He has conducted research in areas including clinical practice, trauma, trauma-informed care, somatics, linguistics, and evidence-based practice approaches for co-occurring disorders. It is my absolute pleasure to share this conversation with you with the great Dr. Takash. Confucius said we have two lives, and the second begins when we realize that we only have one. We're all given one whole life. And when we find and break the barriers that are preventing us from living fully, we have an audacious attempt to improve mental health. One Whole Life with Sean Francis. 
talking kind of like uh, Joseph Campbell, Carl Jung type stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when we start looking at that typical story, um, there there is this idea um, with with Jung when he's talked about the collective unconscious. One of the things that he was actually initially talking about is these inherited memories, these inherited ideas, feelings, and instincts, and more so instincts and, and whatnot. And when he started looking at that, uh, you could see that you know, rats raised in captivity still have a natural fear response towards the smell of cat urine. And, you know, these things, they're ingrained genetically. And we have cross-generational trauma that gets passed down that with things that happen generations before, you can still see the after effects on people generations down. And this idea kind of spurred this concept of we see these repeating modest throughout cultures of these different types of characters. Now, part of it, if you just look at it anthropologically and we just kind of look at how societies are built, a lot of these roles are pretty common throughout different cultures. So naturally stories are gonna be evolving from that. But there is this idea of this natural heroic journey, this cycle that happens. And Jung talks about that, and, and then Joseph Campbell picked up on that with these stories and how people tend to go through these arcs. Now, Frederick Nietzsche's talked about this idea that theater and movies and media played this role in humanity of really telling people how, uh, giving examples of how to live. And so there was this, in his book, Birth of Tragedy, he talks about how philosophers talk about like how you do it. Um, but then artists show you how to do it and actually give that example. And so media and stories and kind of the oral tradition of passing down stories start evolving to show people how do you respond in, in situations? What is the correct way to respond? How do you go ahead and emulate somebody who's heroic in, a, in face of a tragedy or in face of some type of insurmountable challenge and then how do you face that heroically and it gives this idea um and young young went as far as to say like that type of modif that type of being drawn to those types of stories are part of those same genetic material that gets passed down the same way that a natural fear of heights gets passed down in most people because it's survivalist yeah and his idea was that art and stories and really looking for heroes for who to worship and how to understand how you should respond to situations was a necessity for learning how to survive, adapt and thrive in culture. And so that was passed on the same way that those instinctual fears were. That's and so, insane. So, cause I've had this question for a long time and I, and you're probably the only person I've ran into that can answer it for me, but <laughs> so fears can be passed on from some, so say like, your great grandma was got bit by a snake and developed a fear of snakes that can be passed on genetically down so or that's where it gets a little bit questionable okay can can that specific phobia now the fear of snakes is something that most people have inherently that's why so many people have phobias and the reason behind that is it's a it, you know you can go ahead and get that so that genetically there is some type of predisposition towards being afraid of snakes now whether somebody expresses that genetically and towards an actual phobia of snakes typically depends on the idea of what's their lived experience 
but right. most people have a predisposition towards it because if you think about it from an evolutionary point of view, most snakes are poisonous. And if you're not afraid of snakes, you're more likely going to get bit by a snake. Therefore, if it's very poisonous, you're not going to live. So therefore it, it doesn't serve this idea of how you carry on cross-generationally. Um, and so if somebody though has a fear of snakes, let's say you go back to your grandma example, mm -hmm. she has an extreme phobia of snakes. Now, in that environment, if you think about this kind of cross, you know, this cross-sectional between genetics and the actual lived experience and how our lived experience affects how our genetic expression is called epigenetics. And it, it goes ahead and it decides which genes kind of get activated. Now, think about if it's a maternal grandmother. So then your mother is growing up in a household where the fear of snakes is being kind of enforced and told like everybody like, okay, now you should be afraid of snakes. It's playing off of that genetic disposition and then heightened because of the grandmother's fear. And then cross-generationally that gets passed down. And suddenly there becomes these stories, almost this family mythology about snakes and how people <laughs> respond to it. And it could, it's more likely to then express in a phobia of snakes because now you've got these cross-generational stories about snakes are bad, snakes do this, you should be afraid of them. Plus we have a genetic disposition towards being afraid of snakes. So in a sense that can be passed down. Now the question is in complete isolation. So if your right. grandmother had an, a phobia of snakes and then everybody else in your family was raised completely separate from her, the question is what's the likelihood of um, somebody a couple generations down having a phobia of snakes? Well, there's still gonna be that genetic predisposition, but now is there the lived experience to then go ahead and increase that likelihood? There are some phenomenal studies that the U of M has done um, on twin studies, twins, identical twins raised separately. And more than chance, there is a whole tendency for them to have similar interests, similar likes, similar types of dispositions, but it's not 100% always. And so, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but the likelihood and the chances of it dramatically increase. This is, we're not even talking about anything on my list. But I've had these questions for a while. I apologize. Um, with the twin studies, I know this is going really deep kind of down that rabbit hole. So even though their genetics are essentially the same, like what's that difference then that, or where, where are they pointing to the difference between uh, two what makes you genetically? You and, what yeah, makes if we were you twins, and, yeah. why would we be different right. and not the same person? And this is kind of that idea that when we start talking about theoretically like cloning, if you clone somebody, is it the exact same person? Yeah. And that's where this whole idea, there, there used to be this long debate about um, nurture versus nature, nature versus nurture, you know, is do genes really write your whole story and say, this is who they are no matter what, or is it lived experience? And behavioralists came out and said, it's, it's all lived experience forget genetics. And so this was the behavioralist movement. This was really big um, for a while, but it did a lot of damage because what the behavioralist movement did, it was, was to say everything that happens to somebody is based off of their perception and lived behavior or experience. And it, it was used to justify a lot of different types of things that were done politically, socially, and treated differently towards other people of different either racial identities, uh, sexual orientations, whatever, it all became, well, this is all just learned behavior. And so it was used very, very negatively. Okay. And 
that movement came and, and, and wins. Uh, unfortunately, that movement had a lot more longstanding influence. And when you look at the American culture, it caught on in America and the US, the dominant culture, a lot more than other places in the world because of this idea that in the United States mythos about pulling yourself up from a bootstraps, you create your own destiny, it's all your own behaviors, you have like this ability to make whatever you want, which is this idea that people love to package and sell. And so this idea from behavioralist came off as, as really resonating with people. But the reality is, is that when we look at the genetic dispositions and we look at social factors, that has a big influence and they, they both, it's not either or, it's both and. And so um, I, I'm kind of going down the rabbit hole here. No, I like <laughs> but, it. <laughs> but yeah, fun. you know, when you start looking <laughs> at it, you know, it's not just your genetics, like you can influence your genetics based off of your lived experience and your lived experience can then also be dictated by your genetics because you'll have a predisposition towards certain things. And so this is this reflective relationship. So when we start looking at twins, when we go back to what we were originally talking about with the identical twins, what makes one person, you know, different than the second, uh, you know, you start looking at what is their lived experience and how does that lived experience then start affecting who they are. And so, the idea that we start coming into is that everybody has these emotional kind of loads when it comes to different types of associations. So if we go back to the idea of snakes, like let's stick with this for a yeah, moment. Yeah, no, that's perfect. Like, let's say you, they both grew up in a family where grandma says snakes are really evil. Stay away from snakes. They're, they're poisonous. If you get bit by a snake, like it's over. Um, and one twin just really holds on to that. But the other twin has a different type of an experience. Maybe there's a gardener snake that, that runs by and it's not poisonous. Suddenly they have a piece of data that conflicts the, the narrative. And it happens because they're temporally in a certain place, certain location, certain time, they have a certain lived experience that's slightly different than the other twin. The other twin maybe sees the snake and runs, but this twin for whatever reason stops and just says, what happens? Or maybe is paralyzed by fear and doesn't run, but the snake, you know, slithers over his foot and goes away. Suddenly there's a conflicting piece of data. And the more that that data starts adding up, the more the narrative starts changing saying, well, grandma's right that snakes are dangerous, but my lived experience doesn't always match up to that. Or I talk to somebody and, they have a and they're a friend and I trust them and I trust their experience and they're not afraid of snakes. There might be something more. And suddenly you get this divergence where these two separate people have these lived experiences that are different. Now this may be, you know, when we start looking at any type of event, how you perceive it and experience is influenced by so many different variables. How are you feeling? Are you hungry? Are you tired? Are you in a good mood? Are you in a bad mood? But like, what are you thinking about at the time? All of that gets associated with the event that's happening. And so even if you have two identical people to begin with, they're watching the same event, they're both experiencing it slightly different. Even if it's just as simple as, I'm looking at it from over here and you're looking at it from there and we both have a different vantage point that we're looking at it at. You know, sound travels slightly different. The, the temperature yeah. might be a little different. They are experience how they're facing me or not facing me or whatever. All of those little things start adding up. And as you continue to grow and fill up your psyche with these different types of events, you're processing data differently than the identical twin. So therefore, those little things can push somebody off on a different course so that they're overall different than the the other person at least there's a lot of times there's smaller differences and you can see the differences in personality because of it 
But if there's dramatic or really important life lived experiences, that could put somebody in motion pretty dramatically away from where the other person is going. Okay. That, that, totally, that makes way more sense. Um, instead of, instead of can, can I pick a new rabbit hole to go down? Yeah, go, go for it. <laughs> no, I, I, lo- I, I could go down this one all night, so I'm trying to <laughs> not go too deep before I can't get out. Um, but when speaking about this, is this where like cognitive behavioral therapy kind of comes into play to that um, we could have the same person cut you off in traffic and everyone experiences different. Like one person would say that guy's an asshole. Another guy would go, oh, you just cut me off. Maybe I was driving a little too fast. And and the reality of it is the guy just, you know, maybe didn't even see you, but the car just exactly. got too close to the front. So is that where the cognitive behavioral therapy is like, let's just focus on the reality and take the emotions and the feelings, not necessarily out of it, but challenge them in a way. Challenge them. Yes. And so that's where, okay. So when we talked about before behavioralists, yeah. so CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy is a second generational behavioral therapy application. Okay. So um, when we go back and say, okay, all it is, is just your behaviors. People realize like, that's not, that's not enough. Now behavioralist approaches work great when you're training animals and a lot of like animal training actually relates off of the, the behavioralist theories. Uh, Skinner, who was a big person with behavioral therapy, learned a lot of his ideas through using pigeons and like using like, how do you do learning theory and, and, and everything else. And it, it advanced learning theory tremendously. But when we start looking at people, there's another cognitive aspect that goes on to it. So depending on the animal that you're looking at, there's differences in the, the cortex or the different parts of the brain that actually thinks or has reflection and is able to say, okay, who am I and what am I and what's my experience rather than just reactive. And so when you start looking at people, they think about their behaviors. They think about how they feel. They, they have emotional reactions. And so CBT takes this idea of saying, you know, if somebody cuts you off in traffic, you're going to have an emotional response based off of how does this affect me? What does this make me feel? And it says CBT kind of looks at the idea that we'll have the emotion and we'll try to put context around it. I'm upset. I felt afraid. I felt disrespected. So I'm going to make this narrative. I'm going to make this idea of what this person is. Well, this person was rude because otherwise I wouldn't feel this way. And CBT is saying, well, slow down. Let's look at just the facts and let's take the motion out of it for a moment and say, if we activate the part of the brain that can just reflect and rationally think about it, let's look at what are potential other options and then decide then if that changes how we feel about it. So if we say, okay, maybe they didn't see us. Maybe that person um, is in a hurry. Maybe they're trying to rush to the hospital. Maybe they're late for their, for their job and if they don't make it, they're fired. And we can start having compassion or understanding, especially if we start using narratives that match situations where we felt like, oh, I remember being that scared in that situation. Right. Something can say, okay, that poor person. And you change your perspective and your relationship with that other individual through doing that. Now, the reality of that is a lot harder to do it's really sometimes hard. <laughs> in the moment <laughs> right. than to just say, okay, I'm going to say pause. Let me stop and think about where I'm at and, and go from there. But the idea behind CBT is saying, okay, even if we can make steps towards that, you know, you'll, you'll probably have a cognitive shift or a cognitive change and, and have a little bit more feeling of agency over the way that you're feeling and responding to these events. Yeah. Cause and correct me if I'm wrong on the stat, but aren't we using just, we're only 5% conscious and the rest is kind of like patterns or our subconscious kind of running the show. That's a really good question. So this 10% is, is the 10%. idea that'll, 
it gets thrown out in media and it yeah. makes for good stories and it makes for good whatever. And what this came from is a misunderstanding of looking at neuroimaging. Okay. And so when people are using certain types of cognitive tasks, certain parts of their brain get activated. Now, it's not, there's this idea that you're only using five or 10% of your brain, but it's usually if you're taking an MRI or any type of a, an imaging of, of the brain at work, you're having somebody do a focused task for the reason of you want to see where that's actually affecting the brain. So it's kind of like muscles in the body. You're not going to be using all your muscles all the time, all at once. Right. If somebody says, go ahead and lift this weight, you're, you're using your, your muscles in your arm to do that. If you're looking at a body scan and saying, okay, what muscles are activated? You say, okay, it's this, it's the arm. Maybe it's some stabilization in the body um, to the core and, and to the legs, but that other arm's not being activated. You're not going to go and say, well, this person only uses 10% of their body. Gotcha. But for some reason with the brain, people saw that and they said, wow, we only use 10% of the brain because it creates this myth of what happens with our potential then if we were able to use 11% or 20%? It's this idea we could tap into so much. Now, if all of the brain was working all the time or firing all at the time, what you'd have is you have seizures, you'd have a bunch of other stuff where the brain's not able to function because some of them, they're, they're acting in contradiction to each other. Yeah. And so you're not going to really see it where the brain is, is 100% lit up in a normal, healthy situation. Right. But that doesn't mean we don't use all the different parts of the brain. And instead, it's, it's, if you go back to the idea of weightlifting or kind of concentrated effort, it's what muscles do you want to exercise and use in that moment? So CBT is trying to train you and, and psychodynamic and all of these other different type of therapeutic approaches are trying to say, can you manually shift where the brain is actually processing information based off of focusing your consciousness? Okay. And... <clears throat> And, and the answer is yes, you know, in, in different parts. And you can actually change the physiological structure of your brain based off of what you focus on. So, for instance, like people that play piano in their motor cortex, the area associated with finger movements are going to be is going to be more developed. They're actually going to have more neurons and, and different types of connections there. That part of the brain is going to be developed differently than somebody that does not have that skill. So what you think about, what you focus and what you do can technically change the whole structure of your brain. Does, does your brain, um, this might be a, a silly question, but I, I got my master's in biomechanics and exercise physiology. So um, yep. it was very body-based. Um, but I always had this idea that, you know, your body adapts to certain stressors you place on. Can Does the brain work in the same way, like neuroplasticity in, in that essence? That is the idea of neuroplasticity. Okay. And so there's also this called, thing called post-traumatic growth. So if you have um, uh, a, a traumatic brain injury, and let's say part of the brain either experiences brain death in that area or there's some type of damage there, um, the brain does a couple of things. First, there's neurogenesis. There's part of it that the, can, the brain can sometimes grow back and regenerate certain parts of it. Um, it. It can do that up to a certain extent. The other thing that's actually just more biologically easier for the brain to do is to reroute its neural connections, use different other parts of the area. You can have people that are born with only actually one hemisphere of the brain and then live pretty much completely normal lives. You would never actually know that hmm. because the brain goes ahead and readapts. And especially if it starts, it's easier usually when it starts younger and somebody's born that way, the brain's adapting from the beginning. Um, but with an acquired thing, the brain can still rewire and adapt and that's where neuroplasticity comes in part of it 
the ability to make new neuron connections and change and adapt the way that it's making those connections is a lot of what they intend or mean when they're talking about neuroplasticity. And you see that most when applied towards any type of damage or um, kind of acquired injury to the brain, but it, it happens all the time. When you're learning something new, there's actually new neurons and you're actually affecting neuroplasticity. When you're going ahead and focusing on certain parts of the body and you're changing the way that the motor cortex relates to the rest of the body, that's affecting neuroplasticity. Um, there's a lot of things that happen that then give you a little bit more agency with, with how the brain develops. That's it, it, like the whole idea for this, for me, I, I remember being in grad school and they were talking about, they were measuring, um, uh, quadricep strength and they had one guy actually doing the exercise. They had another group, um, just thinking about doing the exercise and the group thinking about the exercise got stronger because the neural pathways in the brain like reacted faster to and that just blew my mind and created, like, I'm, I'm, I'm just happy I ran India because I had this idea for maybe seven years and I didn't know who to ask the question to. So, so thank you. Well, I mean, and that, that, that example right there also brings up a really important thing is so that, you know, with, with the brain, the other thing that we're going to, that we should talk a little bit about is if the brain is under duress or stress for long periods of time, that actually can be damaging the same way that if you're overtraining a muscle or damaging okay. a muscle, you're not going to grow it. It actually damages and hurts and you can actually do some serious injury there. So chronic stressors can also have a negative effect on neuroplasticity and be a little bit more difficult on the brain and, and have a negative effect there. You can actually see changes in people that have had long-term irretractable depression in their hippocampus and different areas of the brain because of those dramatic stressors. Now, when we start talking about <clears throat> You know, uh, the idea of people thinking about working out and becoming stronger, most of us actually have psychological blocks that stop us from accessing our full strength potential. Right. And the reason being is that under extreme circumstances, and this is where you hear the stories of like mothers lifting cars and the adrenaline kicks in, um, we can actually technically usually access a lot more strength with adrenaline and under duress than we can in normal circumstances. And we typically have psychological blocks because when you access that type of strength, you have a greater risk of breaking a bone and actually stopping from being achieving your goal of whatever it is of, you know, if it's, you know, if you're just trying to do it for sport or you're trying to do it forever, for, for whatever, you're more likely to injure yourself. And so our brain puts these psychological blocks in there. When you build that brain body connection and kind of looking into physiology and when they start looking at like uh, what actually causes when somebody exercises muscle growth, the first eight weeks, most of that is actually just building neurological brain body kind of connections so that you're better able to access the actual muscles and that you're using effectively. And so when you start trying to say like, okay, somebody's trying to build muscle, that first eight weeks is usually that, that connection part. And you're actually just really fully activating or more fully activating, not actually hitting your full potential, but more fully activating that so that the gains you're seeing in strength are actually just more along the lines of reduction and mental blocks stopping you from accessing that. And from there, you continue to grow and build more. And so those are some of the theories. A lot of people have different things, but that's kind of one of the predominating theories right now is that it, it is that mind-body connection first that kind of helps bring some of those blocks down. So are these stressors, uh, 
just just shifting into like depression anxiety or a little yeah. bit those stressors that can like what what parts what parts of the brain get hurt and what are the the stressors that is it um like environmental and i've heard trauma situations and i know chemical situations can do that type of thing too i'm like yeah so if we stick with this idea of let's let's stick with exercise for a moment yeah so we have this um it's an HBA, it's a hippocampal, the tutelary grant access. Uh, we have this connection in our brain that goes from our hippocampus up through our cortex. And basically when, when a, something startles us, there is a, a launch of adrenaline. Adrenaline happens in the body. A part of the brain picks that up and says, okay, there's some type of danger. And typically what happens is we will go ahead and either have an instinctual response, but more often than not, our brain's trying to cognitively say, do I need to respond to this? Now, the most adaptive way of responding to it is to respond first and think later, which is most of the time what happens. And that's where you get the startle response and whatnot. But if you're not over aroused, your brain will go ahead and try to process what did I just hear and then go ahead and respond to it. And so when we normally have these different types of stressors. Stress is good. Like we can't, you can't live without stress. And so when we, when I'm, when I'm talking with either patients or when I'm talking just in general about stress, we we need to first define what stress is. And so, so much in pop culture, people have used stress and came up with their own definitions of it and, and throw it around that sometimes the word doesn't always have like concrete meaning for people. So when we talk about stress from this point of view, stress is just a recognition of change. Something needs to change, something is changing, or I have a desire for something to change. And once that happens, your body has a stress response. Now, this could be I'm hungry and I need to eat, stress response. This could be I'm too hot and I need to cool down, stress response. This could be I have a paper due tomorrow and I, you know, and I, and I, I don't got any time to do it, stress response. Your body's responding to all these stressors in a similar way, but the magnitude to which they respond to it varies based off of different types of things, like how important is it to your, your well-being, either through physical necessity or psychological associations where you've said, okay, I, I believe that this is this important to me. From a physiological point of view, that paper isn't that important, but right. psychologically, if this is an important class or if it has a big bearing on things, it has a lot more weight to it. So we all are born with a stress tolerance and this varies for people. And it's almost like a set level. If you wanna go back to exercising, it's like, we all have kind of like a natural strength. Right Now, Throughout our life, one of the things that happens is our stress levels go up and down. We get tested with different situations or different types of experiences. And if we go over that stress amount that we had, they're kind of like, this is where our cap is. And when we go above this, the body responds in a stressful manner. If that happens and we go just over that line, but it's not too far, we use coping mechanisms or we're able to solve the problem and we go back under it we've just gone ahead and increased our resilience a little bit, almost the same way. Like if you're weightlifting and you lift a little bit more weight than you're used to, as long as you don't injure yourself and you give yourself some time to recover, your body's going to adapt and be able to take on that weight and, and, and ideally grow stronger so that you can handle that. And through that, we can start building resilience. Now, if we go back to the weightlifting thing and suddenly you've tried to lift something way heavier than you're able to, 
you don't have proper form and suddenly you don't rest or whatnot, you've had a major injury and suddenly you can barely lift anything with, with that arm. And what happens is then your stress response drops dramatically, kind of the same way your strength would drop dramatically. Small things get you over into that stress response. Is that and your body just trying to protect you at that point then? It is. Okay. And so when, it, when you're over that stress response, think of this from an adaptive point of view, your body will typically go into either fight, flight, or freeze, your primary adaptive functioning for what happens when an acute stressor happens. So if you're walking in the woods and there's a bear, you're either going to fight the bear, you're going to run from the bear, or you're going to freeze and hope that either other people come and save you and help you, or that the bear loses interest and leaves your body responds in a short-term matter. It's thinking that this is a five to 10 minute problem. And that's really when we have these acute stressors, your body is really designed to be in it for short periods of time and then recover from it. And then you get that sigh of relief and the parasympathetic nervous system kicks in and all of a sudden you start calming down and you're saying, okay, well, that was close and wow. But <clears throat> when we have these day-to-day -day stressors, they start compounding. So if you're looking at, I got to pay rent or I've got to find a job, I've got to get this paper turned in, these could all be small stressors overall. But once it starts building up, it crosses that threshold. And once you cross that threshold, now you have this, this acute response, what's meant to be an acute response, fight, flight, or freeze. Well, if you're in the flight mode constantly and it's not resolving within a half hour, you're starting to look for where are my exits? How do I get out of here? Heart's racing fast. Your thoughts are going quickly. You're starting to kind of problem solve and try to solve this. What does that look like? That's, that's anxiety for a lot of people. Or you freeze. You stop being able to move. You are going to conserve energy. You're going to wait it out. You're going to hope that somebody else is going to come help you, um, which is you know often a universal sign throughout cultures. If you need help, is crying. It's it's you've got this conservation of energy which tends to be being lethargic you tend to just stay contemplative and, and focused on what's going on and and have a difficult time thinking about other stuff because you're trying to stay in that moment uh, and when that stays for a long period of time for some people that becomes depression and then you also can have with either one of those irritability which is where you see that fight response happen and so what you start seeing is that this normal adaptive response when prolonged and, and, and we have these normal response to abnormal circumstances, but they're prolonged or compounded and not easily resolved, you start seeing depression and anxiety. And it's been estimated that three fourths of the world's population will have a clinically diagnosable experience of depression or anxiety because your body is responding naturally in a way that it's designed to respond to stressors, but culturally and socially the stressors that we're having aren't the type of stressors that our bodies are adapted to ideally handle. They're things that sit and that stay and that aren't resolved within a half hour. And when you start continuing to have compounding stressors, suddenly you go ahead and it drops down to a certain place where your stress level and tolerance is lower than it has been before. Smaller things can put you off. And this is where it gets easier to start going into this recurrent depression and experience. And so when we start looking at how does physiological experiences sometimes result in depression and anxiety. This is one of those ways, but it's also then influenced by our psychological and cognitive appraisal of the situation. How important is that paper? How important is the job? How important is, you know, this friend X, Y, or Z? We put 
different types of cognitive or psychological weight onto that. And because of that, our body responds in kind as it being a more dramatic or less dramatic stressor. And so that person cutting us off could feel like a very big deal because suddenly it feels like a threat and that person's cutting me off and they, they put my life in danger. They put everybody else's life in danger and stress levels go really high. Or it can be, well, that was a really, that was an accident. They didn't really see what was happening. Stress levels were much lower and you have a lot less to kind of go back to try to hit homeostasis or go back to a balance point underneath that stressor. It's insane. There's a lot to digest. in it. <laughs> it makes me think of like COVID instantly though, of how yes. there's, uh, and I might be wrong again. I, I'm not an expert by any means. I'm just trying to talk to experts so I can at least get a taste of what you guys know. Um, but it seems like we almost like predictability in a ways. And then this last year has been anything but that. And just that alone, I would imagine, is just causing all sorts of issues, not even talking about the lack of connection that we're able to have with other people and other things on that. Absolutely. Predictability. So whenever you deviate, we so we, we get into the circadian rhythms, we get into our habits and our routine. And when things are predictable, it's manageable and our stress levels tend to be a bit lower. And so what you see is actually what tends to create more of a, a, a dramatic, or I don't want to say dramatic in a bad way, but more of a, a stronger response is when there tends to be a feeling of a lack of control. So when we feel like we don't have control over a situation, it tends to have elicit more of a stressful response. And so, and we're not even, we'll talk about trauma in a little bit because that's, that's a whole nother level of feeling yeah, out definitely. of control and powerlessness and, and whatnot. But that stress combined with a sense of control tends to give us this feeling of, of, of stress or overwhelming and then relates to our stress response and how we kick into that fight, flight, or freeze. So when you have predictability, you have a sense of feeling of control. And so even though you might get hungry, you know, okay, I can go ahead and I have my food at noon. I have my meal at noon. I have food in the, in the fridge. And so that stress creeps up to let you know I'm hungry. The body releases cortisol, which is kind of its indicator that you're feeling stressed. You start having those feelings of hunger. Your body says, okay, time to eat, time to do something. You immediately are like, I have my controls. I know that I eat at noon. It's noon. I have food. I'm ready to go. Stress gets resolved. And it, it doesn't, it either doesn't push you over the edge or if you were over the edge, it pulls, pulls you back down underneath that threshold. When you have a break from that routine, it is a stressful event because it feels like a lack of control. One of the things that most people don't realize is that like things like vacations are actually processed by the body and psychologically to be quite stressful, which is where you see a lot of people have these fights when they're traveling with groups of people because it feels like a lack of control and it feels like it's a break from the norm. So their likelihood of having a stress response becomes higher. So rather than it being relaxing all the time, often the traveling there and back, and anytime there's a sense of lack of control or predictability, tends to create a, a more intense stress response to it. Wow. And so with COVID, we broke so many types of routines. We broke so much predictability. And you've thrown in this X factor of like, what is the culturally what's happening in our society? How are people responding to the virus? Is this virus sticking around? Is it not? It's this lack of sense of, of control and predictability. So you see a lot of people 
sharing their struggles, you know, and talking about depression, talking about anxiety, or even just kind of more nonchalantly talking about eating. And, you know, even seen on commercials where people are binge eating boxes of, of, of crackers, that there's, there's these different commercials that are out there. And why, why is that? Well, when we are stressed out and you go in that fight, flight, or freeze, our body tends to stop thinking about long-term survival. It's not thinking like, I want a salad. And instead it thinks about like, what can quickly be turned into quick energy? So you start looking at things that are fats, sugars, and carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. And so those things that we typically call comfort foods and our bodies start craving those and and, and taking those in because either A, I can use it for fast energy if I'm going to run, or if I need to store energy, those are easier to store and break down so that I can wait out whatever's going on. And so a little bit of comfort food tends to bring our stress down, makes us feel a little bit better. Also because of the serotonin and everything else that gets elicited by those things that are typically comfort foods. But a lot of it tends to just reinforce that we're in the stress paradigm. And so you'll see when there's a lack of predictability, people tend to crave those types of things as a way of coping. They're trying to think of like how on on a subconscious level, on a genetic level, we're saying, okay, I need to survive. To go kind of back to where we started at this whole yeah. conversation, I need to survive. What am I going to do? That inherited idea is I'm going to eat these types of foods that are easier to store, that I can either turn into quick energy and, and run as fast as I can from whatever the threat is, but you can't, can't run from COVID. Or I'm going to go ahead and almost like hibernate and wait it out. And so you see those types of responses happening. The other thing that tends to happen is that people look for where do I have a sense of control? So um, things that people tend to do to gain a sense of control. They look at, okay, can I go into escapism? Can I watch movies? Can I, you know, and so you see Netflix and, and all these things where people are watching because it's a moment to step out. I can press play. I can step into this other movie. I can either have this predictable experience that's going to last an hour or two hours, or I can binge watch a season and it gives me a momentary escape, but I feel in control and I can always hit pause and stop. That tends to actually help decrease stress so long as it's not overdone into a place where now it feels like I'm ignoring everything else and it's causing other stressors because I'm not doing what I need to do or video games you know you ultimately you get this proxy world where you have a sense of control that helps reduce stress overall because you're you're, you're doing something that you feel like you have control in a place in a, in a context where the world otherwise feels out of control now again so long as the game isn't hyper stressful itself yeah i know my wife jumped to mind she's a call of duty player (laughs) so there's days where it definitely raised her stress through the roof (laughs) it's it's fun to watch her that's for sure (laughs) yeah and so yeah you see that with COVID, and and people are trying to find a sense of either control or else and act that that stuff exercise helps because it's mimicking fight fight or free or it's the fighter or fight modes, you know, you're either pushing and lifting and using those types of muscles and your body says, okay, I feel like I'm doing something. And so stress levels go down. Or if you're doing cardiovascular, you're running and your body's saying, okay, I feel like I'm running from the stress, even though you're not really running from COVID or anything like that, the body can feel like I'm doing something. Now, as long as you're not over-exercising and over-exerting yourself, where it goes from saying, I feel like I'm doing something productive to now this is taxing to the point that I, I'm feeling worn down from this as well. It's, it's where, where's that line of, um, I, maybe not a line, but if you, if we sit here too much, you were saying like different parts of your brain, like change it. 
do you see that already happening with COVID with the amount of stress people are just ingesting all it the time? Depends. And yeah. so this is where everybody has a different level of the stress response. Okay. And so this is where, you know, the predisposition, some, some people, you almost think of it like an immune system. Some people have stronger immune systems than yeah. others. Some people have natural strength different than others. Some people based off of where they're already at, you know, what was already experiencing in their life, what, what were their past experiences? What have they already gone through in life and what have they either been exposed to or not exposed to that has changed the way that they respond towards stressors genetically across you know, like as you know, if, if you have somebody that has a trauma a couple of generations before, people sometimes have a more disposition towards stress and anxiety a couple of generations later because of the experience that, that happened earlier in, the, in, in that lineage. And the question is, is, is it kind of that idea of those stories being passed down or is it in the stress that kind of goes along with somebody that has had traumatic experiences that then are trying to protect everybody else from it? Or is it actually genetically there that gets passed down? And what we're seeing with the science is that it's, it's both. And yeah. so um, that cross-generational trauma that they're talking about could change the way that somebody responds to then other stressors within their life. So there's all these different factors that come together to say, you know, how is me, Michael, like how is Michael going to respond to this event? And if we try to just take a snippet of my life and in a couple of moments or a couple of contexts or have a conversation or even try to expand it to a couple of weeks, it's too reductionistic to really get a good accurate idea or prediction of how this is going to affect me personally. And same, same if we were going with you, Sean, and we're going yeah. to say, okay, let's, let's just have this conversation and say, what's the likelihood you're going to respond to this situation based off of what we know, it's not enough context. And so, um, when we start looking around and we say, okay, is it affecting people? Well, we don't to some extent. Yes. And we, we've got reports out there that, you know, um, self-reported instances of depression and anxiety are higher than, than before. Um, and, and we're starting to see, you know, substance use being a, a major concern, even more than it had been before because of this isolation and everything else. Um, to the extent of it, we don't know. And the other thing that we have to kind of then think about is when we start looking at, to, to loop this all back around to our conversations yeah. from earlier, what are our kind of benchmarks in society are kind of our heroes or the people that we're looking at, what's our considered idea of normal? And with that, what does society tell us, the cultures that we subscribe to that, that influence us? What is that? What do they tell us about the idea of talking about mental health challenges and what you're experiencing and what you're going through. And if you have no type of context or role models or support system that says it's okay to actually talk, say, hey, I'm struggling or I'm experiencing depression, even though we can go back and say, biologically, we know three fourths of the world's population is gonna have depression or anxiety at some point because of stressful events. And that's the way the brain is designed to respond to it. Often the dominant culture message is be strong, you know, you, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and move on. And so it, it creates this paradigm of this, this conflict within people where they may be experiencing something, but then feeling prohibited to talk about it and share it. So then when we start thinking about when we're hearing that experiences, depression and anxiety are up kind of socially, what's the actual number of that? where's the actual percentage of people versus the people that just feel comfortable reporting. And it, it, it gets really hard to gauge that because 
there are so many messages where people in the dominant culture that where people are being told don't share, don't talk about it, just tough it up, be a good role model, be strong. You know, those types of messages that that then disconnect people from sharing their feelings. Yeah, I mean, so, I still fight that. I mean, I I've been diagnosed with depression since I was 10, you know, hospitalized twice from it and um I'm still always like is is this depression right now or or is this something else I'm trying to, you know, work through and that's i was it's it's hard to know when to talk about it and what to say and that's why i'm doing it this way i'm <laughs> i don't have the answers so i'm gonna find like talk to you because you guys know the research and not um just some things on facebook that just keep getting shared around that might right. not be the best quality of stuff out there well, and that's, you know, Facebook then plays a part in this because that becomes people's norm. So if you're going ahead and being part of groups where people are talking about it in a productive way or else talking about it in a negative way, it shapes our views and our experiences. It goes back to the idea of the snake, you know, and that one twin that has a snake that has a good experience and says, you know what, snakes aren't that bad versus the other twin that just hears the story saying, no, you never talk about your feelings. You never go by the snake because it's poisonous and that's dangerous it changes the way we interact and then have these associations with what that event is. And so there's, there's a lot that's going on contextually that shape how we feel about sharing our emotions and opening up. And it's, it's actually really fascinating what's going on out there when you start thinking about social media. Um, but there's that risk then where, you know, what, what happens because you, you get this kind of, there's this part of it where you don't want to downplay it and say, okay, it's not there. Um, and we tend to sometimes do that because of the dominant culture of, of what we've been told those messages. So, for instance, I have my doctorate. I have done a postdoctorate fellowship. I've, I'm a COO. I, I do all this stuff. But I go to the dentist and I sit down and I'm in that chair and they ask, how's flossing going? And I say, great, because <laughs> like, I've been flossing for the last couple of days. You know, and I try to floss normally, but like anybody, you know, you, you kind of go back and forth. And most people are like that. And, and, and it's the thing is like, you can have all the insight, all the training or whatnot, but you get that moment where somebody asks you, how's this going? And they're in a position where they're supposed to judge, you know, like, hey, uh, how are you doing? And I, I got this idea, whether it's somebody that we see as family that's supposed to judge how we're doing or you know, the dental hygienist assistant who's asking about flossing before the dentist comes in, like we tend to, to then kind of say, oh, I know how I'm supposed to respond to this. So right. I'm going to go ahead and, and tend to do that. The danger in it is like when people are struggling with, okay, is this depression? Do I want to go ahead and say it's not so that I'm presenting better? Or, you know, at the same time, if it's, I'm so used to identifying as having depression, that anything that feels like a negative feeling, I'm going to suddenly call depression. And that then suddenly reinforces a narrative of I'm a depressed person. That's, and that's where, where I get looped into, I think, is like, um, I'm trying to be the guy who's talking about depression, but I don't want to be the guy who's just depressed all the time. Like, it's just something, it's just something that I'm dancing with, I like to say, instead of it's not me, you know, it's, and that's where this idea of agency and what we internalize and who we see ourselves and our self-identity comes in. Okay. Because if we go ahead and start saying, okay, um, let's, let's say somebody is saying, okay, okay, I'm, I'm growing up in this family and I'm told I'm supposed to be afraid of snakes. I'm afraid of snakes. And they're not stopping to think, okay, what am I, what's my real experience and what, I, what I actually 
am I afraid of snakes or not? Rather than I've created my identity to be afraid of snakes. Now you're going to go ahead and respond the way that you think you're supposed to to snakes. And you're supposed to, you know, kind of do this so that you fit in and that you're part of that thing. And we can do the same thing with our self-identity as we say, okay, I'm this type of a person. I'm going to go ahead and respond this way because I know this is how I'm supposed to respond. And then we start reinforcing this message and we start living into it because we expect that that's what we're supposed to do. Yeah. And we kind of set our own course and set our own narrative. And so things like there's this whole approach of therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy act, Mm -hmm. which will go ahead and say, recognizes that there is power in language and how we talk about it. So rather than saying my anxiety, you're saying, okay, I'm feeling a sense of anxiety right Mm -hmm. now. And you make sure that you get rid of that possessive because if it's yours, we have a tendency not to want to get rid of it because it's part of me. What, what, who am I without anxiety or who am I without depression? And it almost becomes scary because then it's like, I have to figure somebody, I have to create a whole new identity. Yeah. Where instead, if it's, I'm feeling anxious or I'm feeling depressed or I'm feeling sad or I'm feeling happy, it's an emotion and we all have emotions and we all have things. Now there is a difference between depression as an emotion, which people tend to use in our our language, um, which often means sad uh, and whatnot, and then actually diagnosis of depression, which is much different. Or, you know, somebody saying I'm feeling anxious or I, I have anxiety about something and a clinical diagnosis of anxiety. We throw these terms around sometimes and the, the lived experience of it is sometimes different than the common use of that term. Um, a good example is, you know, when we start thinking about like, what's the actual term mean Antisocial. You hear this all the time where people say, oh, I'm feeling antisocial today. Antisocial is often used in the common vernacular to me and like, I don't feel like being social. But the actual definition and clinical definition experience of antisocial is, I don't want to subscribe to cultural norms. I don't care about how other people think society-wise, um, either because I don't have empathy for it or else because I've, if it's kind of more developed, then I, I've learned that it doesn't help me to care what other people think and so therefore i'm more likely to break the rules and and do what i need now that same trait in the right circumstance actually becomes a strength when you see like people that are war heroes or actually you know cops or or heroes that are running into dangerous situations to help save others or do others they have that same trait which is i don't really i'm not going to really care about what everybody else is doing i'm not going to feel as threatened by dangerous situations and I'm going to think more independently and say, what am I supposed to do? What's best for me? Well, if this is my job is the best to, to complete this job to save somebody or to do my mission. You're going to go ahead and do it. Now, if you take those same types of traits and you apply it in a different context and say, okay, well, what's best for me is to go ahead and steal this or, or take this, whatnot. Culturally, you have the, you know, the actual lived experience is, is fairly similar but culturally, because of the different perspective that gets placed on it, one's considered clinical and quite dangerous, and the other one is considered heroic. And yeah. all of this is, is based off of our lens of what we consider, what is mental health? And often mental health ends up being having this cultural influence where it's dictated by what are our understanding of cultural norms. And so with some cultures, a slight feeling of depression, kind of ennui, 
is is kind of more accepted and saying, okay, yeah, you know, because when you're a little bit, have a little bit of depression and it's not dehabilitating and whatnot, you're a little bit more rational. You kind of see things a little bit more clearly. You're less likely to be kind of wearing the rose-colored glasses and that's sometimes more cherished. There's also other cultures where it's happiness is the ideal. And so if you're not happy and, and out there and energetic and upstanding, you know, like and outgoing, um, something's off. And so our idea of mental wellness tends to be shaped by the cultures that we live in and the lens yeah. that we view it through. Um, and so when we internalize that, our perception and our experience of it can then influence how we express our symptoms. And then that, when we start talking about the physiological part of it, has this reflexive experience where how we believe something is can influence then physiologically how our brain perceives it and responds to it. And then we also have the other, other conundrum of physiologically, if something's going on, it can influence how we perceive and experience something. So there's a lot of research coming out now that's saying, okay, we have different types of depression. You have people that are going at it because they have this kind of psychological appraisal of a situation, they're feeling their cognitions are going on and they're saying, okay, I'm feeling this way, I'm seeing this way, I'm experiencing this. And because of those stressors, because of everything else, it's resulting in depression. We also have another line of research saying, okay, in some cases, it's also inflammation, chronic inflammation in the brain in certain types of areas will then cause people to perceive things differently. It will affect their mental, uh, kind of their cognitive flexibility and their ability to process information. And that'll manifest as feelings of depression. Um, and furthermore, you can have people that have brain injuries that then result in because of different areas of the brain being damaged or hurt or bruised or harmed can go ahead and affect and cause somebody to have depression as well. And so you can see that it can either be how you perceive things and believe things to be in your psychological appraisal of situations can go ahead and lead to depression or the physiological can go ahead and lead to depression and change. And But both of them influence each other. So the chicken or egg doesn't really matter in this sense because it can come from either direction and the influence can go either either way is there is there tests or anything you can do to kind of check this out to know at least where to start if it is i mean i know you can probably get mris and things for see if you have a tumor or something in your brain yeah so more of those physiological things you can test for now the issue when we start talking about depression and anxiety is that when we start talking about it clinically these are typically syndromes. And so what syndromes are, or the mental health side of it, it's not like you can go take a blood test and say, okay, um, you know, do, is this virus present? You, you know, like with COVID, you can go take a COVID test and the COVID test will say, okay, you know, it's one piece of data, but is, is the virus present on that sample that was taken? Yes Could you no? take blood tests to rule out if there's something hormonal or though that's affecting? Absolutely. Okay. And a lot of times when somebody has depression, one of the first things that they look at is, is their thyroid, is somebody's thyroid off. Okay. And so they'll take a thyroid because we have, um, if your thyroid is off, it's more likely to then influence somebody having experiences of feelings of depression. And so there are things that you can test that way to see physiologically, are there some stuff going on? But when we start talking about depression, as it's typically talked about within the mental health area, there isn't like a blood test that you can take to say, okay, does this person have depression? Does this person have anxiety? Um, where we are at now is that there are different types of tests that you can take to see genetically how somebody would respond to certain types of medications so that if somebody is going to prescribe an antidepressant or 
you know, something to help with anxiety, you can know how that person's going to metabolize it and see if they're going to have, or more likely to have a good response or any type of negative side effects with it, which is phenomenal because that's often where people turn away from wanting to use medications is because the effects that it has on them can be so variable. And that's been my nightmare is um, like, they might work for a year and then all of a sudden they stop too. And I don't know if that's your body or brain adapting somehow to it too, or just loses something or, you know, it might take four to six weeks to kick in. I know I've heard that my entire life. And then, you know, you get to six weeks and you're like, I don't feel any different. And then you start a whole nother six week cycle almost over again, it feels like, and it can get frustrating really quick. You hear that a lot from people where they go through that experience and they say, okay, it's the four to six weeks till it typically takes effect. And that's with most SSRIs. Um, there's other meds that they're coming up with. Some of them have uh, some, some of them, some different approaches that are out there now have different, really take different lengths of time to start being effective. But okay. typically with SSRIs and, and whatnot, what you're going to see is that four to six weeks is typically what most psychiatrists would say um, would take to, to see the effect. Now, medications gets a little tricky. Now I'm going to go ahead and just own right now that. So I'm, I'm a psychologist. I, I don't have prescriber privileges. So as um, part of kind of my profession, I just have to own that I'm not a medical doctor. So I don't get to talk about psych, psych meds in the right. same way that a medical doctor does. What I can do is I can give psychoeducation about it. And when somebody is taking medications, what happens is their brain adapts and changes based off of that medication. So if, for instance, SSRIs, what we, serotonin uptake re-inhibitors, mm-hmm. um, what, what they end up doing is if somebody has low amounts of serotonin to, to our current understanding of it, and, and this is different medications act in different ways. So this is just kind of an oversimplification and an overgeneralization of how some of these work and how our current understanding of how they work go. But SSRIs, um, Typically, when the brain is using serotonin, it sucks it up into um, into the different neurons, and it, it when when it's firing and whatnot. If we have low amounts and it, it uses it, uh, then typically, if we don't have enough of it, what, what serotonin does on an oversimplified way of discussing gives us a sense of well-being, contentment, and saying, you know what, that's fine, it's okay. It almost lets us say it, it's not quite like a GABA where GABA is oversimplified is almost like the brakes and saying, okay, stop. Um, it's more calm and saying like, hey, it's fine, let it go. And so when we don't have that, it's, it's harder for us to, to move on for things, especially with like ruminative depression where we're kind of replaying events over and over again, or when we're, you know, with anxiety, you see SSRIs used a lot too, because we're, we're just fixated on certain types of outcomes. Um, when somebody starts taking it, the, the analogy that I tend to use or the metaphor is, um, it's, it's think about it like, like a box factory. And I know this is a weird way of thinking about it, but like if your brain needs to make a certain amount of serotonin and it's not making it, um, it's almost like a, a factory that needs to make a hundred boxes a day. And, and right now they're making 20. And so suddenly that serotonin comes in and it's almost like the taskmaster boss. That's like, okay, you need to make 100, 100 boxes a day. And all of a sudden, all of the workforce kind of pulls together and, and you're making 100 boxes a day. The challenge is, is that the, the road to get there takes a little bit of time. You're not going to get like a workforce that suddenly next day is making 100 boxes. It takes a little bit of time for everybody to kind of get back on their game and say, okay, let's, let's do this. 
with people that are experiencing that, when you're in depression, you're going to have normal ebbs and flows and ups and downs. Typically, there are going to be some days I feel a little bit better than others. And some days I feel a little bit worse. And as you're getting to that place where your brain's making enough serotonin, you can have a couple of different experiences. One, either it's not the right med and you've spent five to six weeks and it, it, you, you get to that place and it's like having the wrong boss in the situation and the, the factory's not making a hundred boxes and you're just not there. Or what else is pretty common is that that change in that path to get there feels so gradual that the time you get there, like I don't feel that much different. Kind of like the same way that we see each other ourselves in the mirror every day and we don't notice ourselves changing that much. You see a friend you haven't seen for a while and so they're like, wow, you look completely different. Like, you know, you, something's, something's changed. Um, the other thing that tends to happen is like when you think about that box that box analogy, if we go back to that metaphor, that kind of story, that analogy, if you get that taskmaster in there who's saying, okay, make a hundred boxes a day and it's, it's, it's working, that, that boss can probably take a break here and there and go, go, you know, go on vacation. Okay. And for a while, the factory is still going to be making a hundred boxes a day because now that's their new habit. And this is where you start getting people that are on medications and sometimes they're saying, you know what, I feel better. I don't think I need it anymore. And they skip it for a day. They skip it for a couple of days and they're like, you know what, I still feel fine. And what happens tends to happen then is if all of a sudden people dramatically stop, it's like all of a sudden if that boss stops showing, showing up at the factory anymore, what tends to happen? Well, people tend to drift back towards 20 boxes a day because mm -hmm. there's, there's nothing there keeping it on track. Now, sometimes with the brain and it varies by person, sometimes they get to a place and their, their factory will just continue to make a hundred boxes a day without that person ever showing up again. And that's great. Um, but for some people, once that, that medication is gone, the brain goes back to the way it was before. It almost reverts back to its baseline of where it was before where that depression kicks back in. And so you have a couple of different factors where people start and stop medications. Now, the other thing that can happen is depending on how the brain's adapted towards those medication, a dramatic stop can have pretty severe side effects or reverse, you know, adverse reactions to it. And so I always recommend talking with your psychiatrist or talk to people who are taking meds to talk to their psychiatrist or their doctor about the meds they're taking and if they're at a place where they want to stop or change, whatnot. I mean, people have the right unless, you know, under most circumstances, they have the right to decide what meds they're taking, right. what not, so they're not. Um, and hopefully you have a provider that can have that conversation with you. Yeah. It, and not just and you as in the, the general. Oh, yeah, group. no, I, I'm following. <laughs> you can talk to me too if you want. Um, it, it just seems so wild that we've, we've covered so much. I'm trying to just kind of wrap it up a little bit um, or tie it all together. But we have, like, traumatic stressors that can create massive amounts of depression we have trauma experiences that can, which is a stressor in itself um is chemical imbalance still a thing or is that like a reaction to things happening or is that part of the dna that's going on where or all of that, the above that, we just don't know that's, <laughs> so that's where when you look at all of these factors and you say okay what is a chemical imbalance now this is a term that people have used to say they used to throw out there to oversimplify this understanding. Okay, yeah. what does it actually mean when there's a chemical imbalance? Does it mean that um, it's, it's been thrown on pop culture, you see it on Facebook, you see people saying, oh, you're, this person's chemically imbalanced or whatnot. The reality is, is, is that we have a bunch of different neurotransmitters. Mm -hmm. Some of them are 
at, at the proper level. Some of them, you know, like for some people, if they're not manufacturing serotonin in the, in the level that the brain needs or dopamine, dopamine is another big one that, that fluctuates a lot. Um, you're going to have ups and downs. Now there is going to be natural ups and downs normally. So even like within somebody's daily cycle, their circadian rhythms, if we kind of want to loop this back together with earlier conversations, when you see somebody kind of going through neurologically their normal day, towards the end of the day and kind of later at night, you see a natural drop in serotonin. And this is why for most people, and this is why you tend to see uh, anxiety and kind of like some type of mental health concerns if people have symptoms, sometimes increase at night. And what, what typically happens is our brain starts getting ready for dream states. And in dream states, what happens is you see a, a reduction in serotonin that like, oh, it's cool, don't worry about it. And you see an increase in, in uh, dopamine that's kind of natural. So when you're dreaming, what that does is dopamine can be related to goal-directed behaviors, and then a lot of it is rewarding. So a small amount makes you feel a little uneasy, like, hey, I've got to, you know, if we go back to being hungry, a little amount of dopamine is like, hey, I'm hungry, I need to go eat something. And then you eat a sandwich, your brain releases a lot of dopamine and something that feels pleasurable. And your brain says, okay, great, that felt great. Next time I'm hungry, I'm going to eat a sandwich. And that starts developing how we like things. This so, develops addictions and things like that too, though, if you do that. Also, so yes, yeah. because then what your brain fixates on and, and focuses on with the dopamine and most things that are addictive will affect, almost everything that is addictive affects the dopamine system to some extent, even behavioral addictions or chemical addictions. And um, what then happens is in dream states, dopamine naturally starts to rise a little bit. Serotonin tends to go down a little bit. And you see with serotonin, when that goes down, our ability to kind of almost chaotically start thinking about different situations increases. And so you know, with anxiety, you see this a lot, or also just in dream states. And so if dopamine is going higher and all of a sudden our ability to kind of think a little more chaotically goes up, what happens is it puts you in a place where in your dreams, you're able to problem solve. And this is one of the theories behind dreaming is that we're often taking memories and experiences throughout the day. We're filtering it through. We're creating random scenarios based loosely off of what we experienced. And this is not all the time. This is just, this is, with most dream theorists, there's kind of three separate buckets. There's processing information from the data to see what goes into long-term and short-term memory. There's problem solving. And then there's this third bucket that we don't fully understand yet. <laughs> so uh, with the bucket where it's kind of problem solving, it's it's kind of going through this whole thing where we can model situations. And you know anybody that's ever gone to bed and slept on something and woke up the next day where it's like, I got it figured out. There are these subconscious and conscious processes that are going on where you're trying to problem solve. And our brain is more apt to do that when chemicals are in certain things. So if we kind of look at that idea of like, what does it mean to be chemically imbalanced? Our brain purposely goes out of balance in that situation so that we can get into dream states where we can then problem solve. Mm -hmm. So if we just say, okay, somebody's imbalanced, it's an oversimplification because those levels are going to be fluctuating up and down naturally to some extent within a certain range pretty normally throughout the day, depending on our situations, depending on if we're hungry, depending on if we feel like we're being rewarded for something and whatnot. So that, that term is an oversimplification. Yeah. When we start looking at um, how sometimes people are intending to use it, 
it, it could be, you know, you could be thinking, okay, does this mean that somebody may benefit from an SSRI or they may benefit from other type of medication to help change those levels? And possibly, but still that, that idea of imbalance doesn't really hold true in the same way because those, those neurotransmitters are going to be playing off each other and kind of fluctuating in balance all the time. Um, if you think of like just even the body, you know, it's balance between potassium and sodium is what allows all our axons and everything else to fire. And you have to have that balance because if you eliminate all salt or you eliminate all potassium, okay. your muscles can't fire in that way. And so, you know, when you, but when one is completely out of sync with the other, you can get situations where you get delirium or, or, or you know, kind of other situations like that. And so psychologically, it's just kind of the same thing. Like you're still going to be fluctuating um, but it's typically not that simple as just something as as off and, and that's it. I think long that, answer. <laughs> no, no, it's perfect. I, I I think my question was coming in at like it. It seems like people are quick to throw meds at a situation when maybe therapy or um, some other avenue might be better. You know, and, and is is there just maybe not better is the wrong word, but is there just too many people who need help and not enough therapists out there? Or is there, I mean, I don't want to go down a, um, a pharma pharmacy, big pharma rabbit hole or anything there, but. You know, so like yeah, let's break this, let's break this down a yeah. little bit. So the interesting thing is, is that when we actually look at the history of psychology, so psychology, if we kind of, um, if we think of psychology as a profession, it started in the late 1800s. And before that, you'd have folk psychology, where you have kind of different people within the community, whether it's in religious settings or kind of town elders or, or different people that are considered the who, whoever you go to for advice, you know, kind of played the idea of kind of a similar role to what psychologists play later. Now, we tried to put that into kind of more of a scientific role. And so when psychology started, it was typically medical providers who had this training and they started doing what, what was called talk therapy or psychotherapy. Um, and there was often this idea of what they realized is that you can, you can talk through situations and get psychological results. And so there was this whole other branch of medicine or science that could just be talking. So then what happened is as those kind of fields developed more, you got part of psychology that became really hyper-focused on perceptions, you know, seeing how people perceive and understand their environment. And another that was kind of more the applied part of it, which is then how do we use this as therapy to help people address things? As that went on, the applied part of it, there was a lot of philosophical debate about how to do it. And a lot of different ideas and a lot of different pioneers saying, okay, let's, let's see what our experiences are. There was a lot of mending of like, let's bring in philosophy, let's bring in different type of academics, let's kind of throw this all together, let's, let's come up with this theory and this idea. Now, as that was going along, one of the things that happened was just you get these leaders in the field and you get these other experiences and, and they just kind of move forward. In the medical community, there was a movement towards like, let's do different types of research studies to show efficacy. You know, like, how do you know that this drug works? Well, you do clinical trials. So there was this whole movement there where it was standardizing and using science and research to prove effectiveness. Talk therapy for a long time wasn't as concerned with that. Their studies were really primarily focused on, like, 
you know, what is, let's look at different perception points. Let's look at different things. Let's do more theoretical based. There was a big movement that started um, with behavioralism because it could, it was easier to quantify it and go ahead and, and, and measure it and do some studies with it. CBT, which was the second generation, then was easier to do research studies and whatnot. But overall as a field, psychology as a whole, talk therapy, didn't spend a lot of time initially saying, let's do research to prove that it works because everybody just said, well, it works. We know it works. Gotcha. Um, and there was a movement around the 90s, which is towards the evidence-based practice where then psychiatry came out and said, we don't need, we don't need talk therapy anymore. We can fix it all with drugs and everybody, we can fix it all with medications. And from a society in a place where a lot of people are looking for a quick fix, this was like, fantastic. Okay, great. And gotcha. People from cultural, you know, kind of the dominant culture were like, okay, is talk therapy over? Do we even need it anymore? Talk therapists said, whoa, 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 we know this works. We haven't <laughs> done these research studies yet, but we can get organized and we can do those. <laughs> so, so this is where the, <laughs> the evidence-based practice movement came in. Now, from, you know, kind of, if you look more of a larger scale, looking at, you know, so what happened is then you have these different branches of psychology that then immediately organized and started doing research studies. And this is where the evidence-based practice movement came from of saying, let's do these rigorous studies the same way that a medication goes through. Let's, let's try it against a, you know, a placebo or also control group and say, okay, does this work? And is there a noticeable difference and, and which one's more effective? And those studies have been done. And what we tend to see is actually that medication is really effective when it comes to addressing psychology talk therapy is really uh, effective. And for some people, the combination of the two is even, even more effective. Um, but talk therapy really quickly came out and was saying, it, it was able to prove, yes, this is as effective, or in some cases for some people, maybe more effective or at least as effective as medication. Um, the longitude of how long the changes last can vary based off the different types of therapy that somebody is doing. Um, and they've done different research studies to show, you know, with talk therapy, you know, what's the longevity of it? Does somebody have long-term effects? Does it stay with them? Or are they likely to kind of revert? And that varies also depending on the type of therapy that they have and the, the approach that they go through. But um, they, have, they have gone ahead and established that for a lot of people in most cases, talk therapy is as effective or, you know, is a good viable option. Uh, compared to meds. Is there... no, it depends on also the condition though, because there are some yeah. things that are going to be more responsive to meds. If you're looking at depression and anxiety, that, that's one thing. If you're starting to look at something that has more to do with neurological changes that are going on that then affects. So like our understanding of schizophrenia, for instance, you know, talk therapy can affect it to a certain extent, but medications are often going to be the thing that are go-to with that because there are neurological changes going on in the brain that are happening in a way that talk therapy cannot always work through. So the, you know, just to say, okay, we're just gonna go with talk therapy for a situation like that most of the time is not the right or, or the most recommended approach. Yeah, I mean, to me, it just sounds like there's a lot of tools, but like knowing what one to use for who is is kind of the mastery that, you know, Absolutely. professionals have. Yeah, so is, is there a group of people, I know you, you mentioned a little bit with schizophrenia, but is there a group of people that might benefit more from, you know, a talk therapy versus, um, like meds based on, um, if it's like a, some kind of a trauma response versus, you know, just stressors in life, or is that still just like a, we gotta see, 
everyone's different. So many individual differences that it's it's not easy to say, okay, this if somebody has this diagnosis, this is what it is. And part of that comes down to like what is actually a diagnosis. So when we start talking about mental health, aside from certain things that we have a direct correlation with physiological changes, um, it's when we start getting a little bit more ambiguous, like let's say depression and anxiety. When we start talking about depression and anxiety, as a diagnosis, currently what we understand that to be is we go ahead and we take a bunch of different symptoms. It could be, you know, low interest in, in things that you normally do. It could be low energy, low, you know, changes in sleep, changes in diet, stuff like that. And what we do is we, we, we take a bunch of those and we loop them all together. We say, statistically, these all tend to happen together. And when we see X number of these together, we're going to call that depression. Now, any one of those could be influenced by any number of other factors. It could be because, you know, lack of diet could be because, you know, I don't have good food options, or it could be because hormonally something's off and I'm not feeling hungry. Now, those different factors could play into that expression of that symptom. But once we start seeing that symptom plus other symptoms, we're suddenly saying, okay, now we're going to group that together and call it depression. Now, what that leads to is that there actually is, is emerging research and different looks at it. There's multiple different types of depression because what is actually the etiology of these symptoms may be varying and different rather than just one set cause. The issue is, is that once you start trying to look at individualized at it, it's hard to do any type of research. So if you're going to say, okay, I'm going to go ahead and say this type of depression is caused by hormones and lived experiences and X, Y, Z, and you need to get a sample size large enough to show that something is effective. We have to find enough people that have had those exact same factors, plus that same hormonal balance, plus that other stuff to show that you can reach statistical significance. Right. It's easier just to say, let's just go back to depression and say, if they have those symptoms or not, we'll label it depression. And because of that, then we can put these people together and study it and say, is this effective? So when we start thinking about like where the future of psychology is going and where the future of treatment is going, it is really going to be able to say, all right, so we may have a starting point or a target to say this is depression. But if we really want to actually figure out what works best for that person, how do we rewind the, you know, kind of rewind the story a little bit more and see what those other ideological factors are contributing to each of those symptoms so that we can have a better understanding of like what's all coming together to create this presentation right now, this lived experience right now, so that we can better treat it. And until we understand those stories and that kind of what's happening and what's feeding into this, we're still stuck at this this label saying, okay, we're going to treat this label. And we're going to do kind of what are the normal tricks we know how to treat this or what are the normal tools we use to treat this label rather than in this individual instance with this individual person, what might be the factors contributing to the expression of these symptoms that just happen to be going on at the same time. Gotcha. That makes sense, actually. Yeah. Uh, you, you've been extremely generous with your time. Do you mind if I just ask two more questions and then... Yeah, by all means. I, 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 I'm just fascinated by what's happening at john hopkins university with the psychedelics and psilocybin research and um it kind of what we lump back at the beginning it's if if i have this correct it seems like we have these patterns if we're going back to the snake we learned snakes are scary they're dangerous or you know a garter snake went across your foot but what it does if you have a therapist if, if you're having psychotherapy or psilocybin therapy with a therapist that a therapist can get there and kind of rework those 
patterns or fears or responses? And is that what's what the idea is with that? The idea behind this and where this is going and how it overlaps with psychology and kind of where the research is looking at is that. And again, what, what they're usually typically looking at is these microdoses and they're really controlled. And that's not just like, let's, it's not the Timothy Leary, like, okay. <laughs> let's go through, you know, it, 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 a lot of times where they're at right now is more of a medical dosing and, and really looking at it to try to get to somebody to a place where they can go um, and say, can we break down those preconceived priors or these connections within the brain? So if we go back and we look at our experiences, <clears throat> you know, I, you know, if we go back to the snake, yeah. the two twins, the one person that has only the stories that snakes are evil and no lived experiences versus the person with the gardener snake. Now this other person is creating different associations within their brain. They're making different connections. They say, okay, snake, snake may mean the thing that's, that's, that's really dangerous. It may be the gardener snake that wasn't dangerous. It may be the stories that snake represents within the family and how everybody responds to it. And all these things get pulled together to create this concept of an idea of snake. Now, when somebody takes, you know, in, in these therapeutic uh, studies, what they're looking at is it breaks it down a little bit and allows people to be a little bit more malleable and reconstruct, okay, which of those seem to fit better. And that's where that studies within John Hopkins are trying to go at is like, can we go ahead and re allow somebody to have the neuroplasticity to reconstruct those ideas at a kind of more conceptual level and where the theory is from, from these types of experiences with hallucinogenics allow people to get to. Now, how that's being used and how that's being used appropriately, there are a lot of questions of like, what's the proper dosage? What's the proper way to do it? There's a lot of factors that also have to play in, like what's the environment that somebody do, is doing in it? Do they feel safe? Because now you have this meta context of not only are you getting someplace, somebody to a place where they're trying to reconstruct their prior, but then they're doing that in a setting that is also going to get overlaid because it's almost like you're pulling it apart. And think about it almost like doing surgery, right? Yeah. So, and this is also just with, with talk therapy is doing the exact same thing. It's just when we're, we're actually getting people to reconstruct their priors in a different way, they're just doing different means to do it. So doing it with a professional and doing it in a professionally controlled environment can be very important because it's almost like surgery. If you do surgery in a room, you know, you just do it in your bedroom and you're doing surgery, you've got all those environmental contaminants that could be then all of a sudden yeah. get in the body and then all of a sudden you've got infections and everything else. When somebody deconstructs a prior they're opening it up to say, okay, let's go ahead and, and deconstruct this prior notion of what this thing is. When you start putting it back together, it's going to be overlaid now with that experience. So, okay. you know, this is also why it's important when people are processing trauma, what is happening is they're breaking down a traumatic moment. Now, if they're talking about this traumatic moment, um, and this is probably an easier way to also almost look at what they're talking about with John Hopkins, you're breaking down a traumatic moment that experience of talking about it, you relive that experience, that memory in the moment that you're at now. So suddenly it's not just, this is what happened to me in the past, but this is what happened to me and this is what I'm feeling about it, talking about it now. Those get encoded together and put back in. Mm -hmm. And so now your memory becomes not only the event, but when I talked about the event and how people responded to it and did I feel safe or did I feel comfortable or did I feel like I wasn't understood. And so when somebody deconstructs a prior with using something like a psychedelic, it's then what is that event happened in the moment while I'm deconstructing it? What's going on? Do I feel supported? Is it safe or whatnot? Because otherwise 
if you were talking about, like, if we go back to the snake, the gardener snake. Yeah. And, you know, we're going down a deep rabbit hole here. No, I like we're it. The gardener <laughs> snake where it's like the snake's not dangerous, but you're in a situation where I don't trust my doctor. I don't feel safe here. You know, there's somebody washing the windows and it looks like they're spying on me. Suddenly, like, this idea of snake that felt... It's like inception, right? It's like you're having, you're rehabbing an experience within the experience you're having, which exactly, is, and that's just and so now suddenly yeah. that experience of the gardener snake is mixed with distrust of the person that you're with, the person outside washing the windows that you feel unsafe with, and that gets reencoded. So now suddenly that gardener snake that felt safe feels prying, feels distrustful, feels <laughs> judging. Like, and yeah. so suddenly rather than having a positive experience, it can turn into a negative one as well. It's like playing, it sounds like kind of like playing with fire in a way, like you're opening up this or brain, it's kind of like brain surgery, I guess, if you think of it like that, but you're getting into the brain, whether it's with talk therapy or psychedelics, and you have to be very careful when you're in there. <laughs> that's, and that's why it's important to yeah. have training. And yeah. like they have. And that's why, you know, and so, you know, you, you'll get this where, where people will read these studies and they'll say, oh, this is really interesting. I should just go out and get some and try it. Yeah, no. And it's, no. and it's like, no, when they're doing these studies and where they're doing the stuff, they're really controlled environments and they're really being purposeful and mindful about how they're doing it because you do run that risk of reconstructing that that with any of the other type of ambient stuff that's going around and re-encoding that, that memory and, and whatnot. And this is also the same reason where you may have people that, um, you know, we have to watch out for this in the field um, or, you know, you can watch out for it where people who want to like good intentions may talk to their friends about trauma and say, okay, tell me your traumatic experience and I'll try to help you through it. And they sometimes can do more damage than good because they're having somebody pulling apart these really traumatic memories. And it's a situation that either doesn't feel safe or feels more exploitive or feels like they're just doing it because they're curious rather than a genuine help or support, or they don't know what yeah. to do with it. And rather than helping the person, they could actually be doing more harm. And so it's, uh, you know, when, when those situations come up, you really need to have somebody that has specialized training in that. Like when I was doing, uh, working with clients, one of my specialties was working with people who had gone through therapy with other clinicians who didn't have the proper training for therapy that had then created a more damaging experience. And then like, how do you repair that um, to get to a place where you can then start doing the work to move forward from that? And so... There's a lot that goes on with that. Yeah. And being safe and being careful and, and really checking yourself and saying, okay, am I in my area of expertise is important. Um, and when you start looking at psychedelics, it's that same thing as that, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff going out there. And the caution is always yeah. make sure that the people that are doing it know what they're doing and that they have the training to make it effective. Right. And as I'm aware, like now there isn't like it, there isn't, anybody out there do it's barely being able to be tested right so this doesn't really a lot exist of it, uh, yeah and a lot of those testing is like uh, you know you have john hopkins but you also have a lot going up in canada um and in other places like that um there are different types of things like ketamine that are you know also being tested as well for irretractable depression and used in, in certain areas but there is a lot of limitations and part of that has to do with dominant culture and, and government and everything else in their response to different types of medic or drugs and, and substances and how those are being treated and classifications and how easy is it for people to actually even do research on it um, can be very difficult. And so it, it, it stops a lot of that. Is this last question. I promise yeah. you on this one. <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm only asking because I'd kick myself if I didn't ask you, but 
I've, I've read a little bit about the default mode network. Is that the part of you that we're essentially rewiring? Is that almost, is that your sense of self that, um, or the, or the snake might exist in your head and that's what we're changing. So default mode net, no, uh, default mode network and like, and whatnot, there's different terms that people use for this. It's kind of your autopilot. It's kind of like how you, your normal baseline, it's kind of where you go. Now, depending on who's writing about it, everybody kind of (laughs) interprets it a little differently. Now, overall, one of the things that, that psychology is a kind of a theoretical field kind of really touched upon was this idea of the conscious and subconscious and unconscious. And then there was a lot of kickback from behavioralists, especially who just said, you can't really look at the unconscious. It doesn't exist. We, we don't, we're not going to acknowledge it because we don't know what to do with it. When we start looking at where we're at with neurology right now and neuro, neuropsychological functioning, what we recognize is that there are multiple different levels of consciousness and some of it is just our split decision-making. So for instance, a chair. You can look at the, the chair that I'm in, the chair that you're in, you know, the chair in my corner. We all call those chairs. We have this idea, this construct of what a chair is. Now, on some level, I can look at your chair and I've never seen your chair before this video. And I know it's a chair. I'm not worried like, is that a dinosaur? Is that a wolf? Is that like anything else? Is that a, is that a threat or is it danger? I have enough kind of constructs psychologically so that I see something like that. My brain makes a split second decision. So I don't have to spend any conscious energy on it thinking like, is that a threat? Is that something really cool? Or is that just, is it a chair? It's a chair. Okay. Yep. It serves a function. This is what it does. And so our brain is constantly making these snap judgments on a subconscious level. I'm not taking any conscious time to think about it. Um, And that's adaptive. I need to be able to focus on other things that's happening. I need to be able to focus on your conversation that I'm having with you right now. I have to put my concentration there. And if instead I was trying to think of like, okay, what's behind you? Is that a, is that a lamp? Is that a tree? Is that a, you know, whatever. If my brain wasn't able to kind of put those together, I would be fixated on that. I wouldn't be able to focus on what's happening. So our default mode network is a lot of these pre kind of these assumptions that we work off of that helps us make these, snap decisions. It also can be used to say, what's our normal baseline for how we approach situations? How do we think about things? What's our normal moods kind of like, where do we normally stay and, and all that. And when we start trying to break this down, it also, it looks at like, how do I respond to things? So how do I respond to a chair? Well, I know that that's not a big deal. Now, if we go into certain types of sports, if I really identified with a team and I see that you have a Yankees hat on, yeah. <laughs> and I'm not a Yankees fan, I may have a different type of response. I may have an initial reaction to it. Now that may then go ahead and cause like an emotional response that I either have to acknowledge or, 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 or change or kind of address or not address or you know so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. That may be part of my default mode network is that I have a strong reaction to that. Now, when we're talking about then what we're trying to do with therapy or what they're trying to do with psychedelics, can we go ahead and change my reaction so that it's kind of either positive or neutral or not that big of a deal that it's distracting me? Um, and so that that's really where they're talking about trying to redo that default mode network is okay. that what's your automatic response? What's your normal operating function? Where are you normally at? Sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> it can be. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, is that once we get to a place where that becomes more 
common, it becomes a default. And then once you start having more experiences that conform to that. So if I had, you know, the initial change of the catharsis of trying to get to a place where, you know, the snake or whatever is not that dangerous. And then I have more experiences where the snake's not that dangerous or whatnot. Suddenly that becomes a more, you know, kind of automatic response because it's almost like the scales have tipped. It's like and a now, conscious choice then instead of just a reactive choice at that point, right? And then it leads to then reactive choice being more relaxed. Right. And so, yeah. Okay. I think that, yeah. I think you just tied my brain in a knot on that last one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I've been trying to figure that one out forever. So I, I, I still got some work to do. With, I think. It's, it, but that's, that's the whole challenge of life is that yeah. we're always learning and that's where learning comes in. Like we take in so much data so much experience and, and everything else that we're constantly trying to judge. Like, is this good? Is this bad? Is this not important? Is this important? We're, we're trying to balance all of that. And we loop it all together to kind of get our general responses to different types of things. And to go ahead and say, I'm going to challenge myself to change the way that I think about something is not as easy as you, as you think. It's, it's change. It's this whole idea of change. And I always say, like, change was easy. Psychology wouldn't be a profession. <laughs> There wouldn't be so many books and movies and podcasts and everything else on it. Realistically, change is difficult, but yeah. change and growth is almost always worth it. And so, you know, it, it's one of those things where it takes time and it takes energy. But if you're changing in a direction that's meaningful and that that gives you that what you're looking for, then, it, then it's worth the effort. I think that's the best way to end this. That was that was perfect. Um, did, is there anything else you want to say to the podcast world? Or uh, I, I think this is fantastic. You know, I, I appreciate what you're doing. You know, having these types of conversations, inviting this dialogue to talk about mental health, mental wellness, I think is an extremely important thing. You know, if it, it's all about changing our narrative and the way that we relate to it, and it is important to go out and reach out for help and talk to people you know, and, and have these conversations and have these discussions and break the stigma about saying, you know, any type of barrier where it says, you know, we can't talk about mental health. We do want to break that down because it affects all of us. Our lived experiences, it's normal to have our ups and downs and to talk about it, it should be normal as well. For sure. Um, well, you're the best. I want to thank you again. Appreciate the opportunity. Happy to, happy to have this conversation. Guys, thanks for watching. That was so much information i have to listen to this a few more times just to really wrap my head around everything that happened if you want to help support what we're doing here head over to onewholelifemedia.com and there are ways to support what we are doing there if you have any ideas or suggestions for you know mental health uh guests or just any guests that you think would be interesting to talk to let me know uh in the comments or an email and last but not least if you do need help one Whole Life Media does have a whole massive list of resources that will help you for what you need, hopefully. And if, and if they don't work, just let me know and I'll do what I can to get you the help you need. That's about it, everybody. Remember, life's meant to be experienced and curiosity will get you there. I'll see you in the next one.